Good morning, benders and non-benders alike, and welcome to the Republic City Dispatch, a radio program covering Nickelodeon's Legend of Korra series. This week, a conscription fiction in the Earth Kingdom. Kai, breaker of chains, and the murky truths of the Bayfogs and the Metal Clan. When's the Skrillex concert in Zaofu? Maybe your hosts know Matt and Dave. Hello and welcome to another episode of Republic City Dispatch. As our announcer has let you know, uh, we're down two people this episode. That's what that's what airing episodes during the summer does. People get plans, they get too busy, family intervenes, uh, you know, a, a civil war breaks out in the Southern Water Tribe. You never know what's going to happen during the summer. Um, yeah, man, I was not expecting that civil war in the Southern Water Tribe. <laughs> Got to avoid those things. Uh, but that means that. I am here, Matt Patches, and I'm here with Dave with a seven Gonzalez. Hello. Uh, so we are down a Davindra and we are down a Joanna, but I think we're still going to have an interesting conversation, minus those perspectives, even though we love them and adore them and we need their insight. And we're going to probably get that next week when we have them back. Uh, we'll, we'll get a little commentary on these episodes from them. I'll demand it. Uh, but we should jump right into what we are talking about this week. Dave, what are, what are the recaps? We got two episodes, which looks like... The format we're going with for the rest of the season, double double Friday night episodes throughout this summer season. Um, but these two were very different. And it's interesting because Brian on Tumblr mentioned that uh, episode four very clearly concludes the arc from three to four. And episode five begins an arc five to six uh, that theoretically they should have been paired that way from the get-go. But because we got three episodes out the gates – uh, in our premiere, everything's a little jumbled, which is fine. It's actually intriguing. So we'll be able to talk um, about each one in detail without big one big together conversation. Yeah, I mean, I want to stop, but put pause a little bit there because I was having this conversation uh, with a friend of mine earlier that it's so interesting the way the multiple ways that we watch television now mm. Like, because she, for example, did season two of Orange is the New Black sort of in one Netflix sitting and binged it all, whereas I've been limiting myself to one or two episodes a week. And so things in that series that are standing out for me are different than what's standing out for her because I'm forced to sort of look at each episode sort of closely in isolation, whereas she felt a lot of anxiety about when the overall plot of the season was going to heat up. So I kind of like that we're we're getting it in chunks. I wish the story chunks were a little bit more unified, but this way at least we have to think about each episode in isolation. I don't know. It leaves us hanging, and that makes me excited. Now, unfortunately, in my reviews that I've been writing at Screen Crush, people will pop up on comments and be like, well, I've seen the leaked episode of Six, and you're a little off on this thinking. And I just want to slap those people because that is rude. That is very rude. So keep keep your uh, – leaked commentary out of this discussion because I like I like talking about just episode five and you know an introduction to a lot of ideas and we don't know how it's going to conclude and talking about that in an isolated way is very interesting um it's like seeing half a movie <laughs> in a way uh which cinephiles would tell you is is sacrilege you're not seeing the <laughs> artist's entire vision but it is we can talk about what a great introduction is and what how drama really builds and the seeds that it's planting. And I think that episode does it very well. And for anyone frazzled by this um, rolling out of episodes, uh, you should you should note that Louis on FX did the exact same thing. Um, so if it looks mismanaged, it probably is a little bit. But even the great 
television auteurs like Louis C.K. Yeah. Uh, are falling into this trap where part half of an arc is being played because they're trying to double up on episodes and get them out out the door and uh they can still live on they can still be great and we're viewing them in different ways but that creates conversation in itself so yeah and we only get to do this once we only get to do it this way once and from here on out for all of history people will be able to sit down and watch all of book three at once so <laughs> yes let's... but our recaps solidify the way that they happen in real life irl we are we're the amber that has encased the mosquito that oh will bring gosh. back the dinosaurs. I wonder if a thousand years from now people will be listening to Republic City Dispatch on their uh I can't think of a future device that will play podcasts, but I'm it'll sure just it'll be fancy. Da- it'll download into their brain while they sleep when they're like six. <laughs> we That's will be the quickly. dreams. We will be the dreams of future children. Wow, that was oh, deep. Oh yeah, that you could have that on your tombstone. The dream of future children. That's an X-Men saga waiting to happen. Anyway, Dave, what happened in these two episodes? Uh, the first episode was called In Harm's Way. We pick up in the Earth Kingdom, and Korra discovers the Earth Queen is forcing all airbenders in Ba Sing Se to join her army. So with the help of spirit-projecting Jainora and Lin Beifong, uh, they free the airbenders. Meanwhile, Zaheer and the Red Lotus, which is what the fandom has decided to call our team of uh, villains, which I love and am therefore going to embrace, Breakout Combustion Girl. Uh, episode two was called The Metal Clan, and one of our new airbenders is Toph's granddaughter in the city of Zaofu, home of the Metal Clan, a group of metalbenders ruled by Lin's sister, Su Yin, Lin's half-sister, technically. The two don't get along. Meanwhile, Zaheer infiltrates Air Island and escapes when Kaya discovers him. So a lot, a lot, a lot happened. That was a very quick recap, leaving out a lot of the great details about both episodes. I admire your brevity here. I I thought it was very well constructed. Trying to Um, better myself. (laughs) Before we get into the big conversations here, uh, I did want to uh, remind people that we would love your feedback any criticism, praise, whatever it may be, uh, in the form of an iTunes review, because that really helps us uh, get out there into the, the podcasting sea and and find people who are looking for Quora conversation. Um, so if you've never done that before, I urge you to. And if you don't subscribe on iTunes, I would urge you to do that. Um, and perhaps... Uh, peruse the backlog of episodes, um, or, or if you if you don't want to do iTunes, remember they're all on Tumblr as well. And I would also say that uh, it really helps us to get reblogs on these episodes. Um, I see a lot of commentary on people's reblogs, and I I really adore that. Like I just love reading people's reactions, not to the episodes. Maybe if anything strikes a certain iron for people and or, or launches them into conversations of their own, but I find that the reblogs uh, and giving people an impetus to write a blog post of their own about an episode is is really fulfilling. Um, so if you want to do that, not just to get the word out on Republic City Dispatch, while that d- definitely helps our show, um, just to hear your thoughts on the episodes, whether it's comments in our talkback section or on your own blogs, it all is fascinating to me. And, and we try to incorporate that, as you'll uh, probably see in this episode. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of, we got a lot of good reactions. Joanna. Yes, exactly. So we now that we're down two people, we have to incorporate include more thoughts and we plan to via your comments. Uh so Dave, let's let's jump into In Harm's Way, which had one of the craziest action scenes in the series so far in my opinion. Um yes. some serious uh, what do you think keeps these action scenes interesting for you? Having seen a lot of what Bending can do, having seen a lot of what 
the direction is capable of in an animated show like this. Uh, did this action scene where um, Zaheer and uh, breaks out Ply, Combustion Girl, uh, and with, with his team, apparently we're calling his team Red Lotus. I yes. don't know if that's official canon or not. I don't think it is yet now. But it does sound any- cool. Yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. Just <laughs> I've just be been calling cool. them Zaheer and Company, which sounds like a 70s television show where they all live in a house together. I um, like my mind graphic design for Red Lotus versus White Lotus mm. more than the Zaheer and Company like band logo. Well, yeah, I, I'm just hoping that someone with illustration skills does like a um, Three's Company style poster or picture for me with Zaheer and all of his friends. Great. Or, oh yeah, maybe it's a kid's show. Anyway, what did you think of this action scene? Uh, I think it was amazing. It's great to see bending used by professionals that are actually trying to do harm to each other uh, because that's when it's the most exciting. It, and it's not that, you know, like learning bending and spirit bending and all those different things aren't also visually exciting when they're animated well, but you know, just a straight up action sequence is fantastic. And we're seeing all these powers that we've seen before, but we get to see them in this new good versus evil context. And Tonrock bursts right out with some exposition right before things get heavy. If I put you away 13 years before I could do it again. And then, yeah, stuff just gets crazy. And I like the use of, um, all the water bending, especially whether it be uh, water for arms, who is Greg Griffin? It turns out. So if we ever wanted like an Azula resurrected in spirit, if not actually resurrected, I think water for arms is our way to go. Um, and her versus Desna and Eska, I think, was just used beautifully in between the Spider Manning and the way they would shoot uh, sort of arrows of ice at each other, and then finally the way she. <clears throat> immobilize them into ice block chunks and just the way that was all <laughs> animated and choreographed I feel uh, showed a real sense of motion that you know was, was really what was missing when other animation studios were doing this show was they would you know do different uh, animation methods with like liquids or fluid substances that would basically save a whole bunch of drawing and now they're just you know drawing all the in-between stuff Mm. so the characters are capable of all this amazing motion i i think in after season one or book book two i should say i was kind of missing the joaquin dos santos uh key juan rayu directing team from book one uh in terms of the action like those guys had such a grasp i mean i thought i was watching the matrix half the time it was so well produced and choreographed or or like a a jackie chan kung fu movie um and book two didn't fulfill that promise again for me as much but certainly book three seems to be stepping up its game this guy melchior zwire uh joined the directing rotation and um i just think some of the some of the as you said it's spider manning although i thought ming hua was a a more of our venom than anything. Uh, oh, I mean, yeah, definitely. If Lynn, <laughs> if Lynn is our Spider-Man with the way she yeah. you know, goes around, then yeah, she could definitely be a Venom. A little more fluidity to her to her movements, obviously because she has water for arms. Um, and then the way she transforms into like an ice pick, bashing down to the ground, getting uh, Pilai out of, out of jail, and then climbing up the wall with ice yeah. pick hands i just thought that was expert well, she gets she gets called out on being a show-off at that moment which is totally true but it's great it's it's just great to see people at the height of their 
bending skills. Right. You want you want to see a show show off. Sometimes. Yes. I mean, uh, it's it's like it feels like the first Avatar was building to that as part of its story because Aang was learning each of these elements, and he was also with children that were like learning that. But once you take all these stories and put them in the worlds of like teenagers and adults you also want to see the bending evolve along with that because you know that you've seen ang fight the fire the fire lord so you know that it's like you could at least do like jet flying so what else is out there and i really like i like how the shows incorporated that or then later in the episode where janora explains her spirit projecting is like part spirit but also a high level like airbending move yeah, I thought that line was really interesting. Oh, what what does she say? I need to look this up. She says, maybe maybe you quoted it exactly. It was like a high level airbender with a little spiritual stuff thrown in. I think that was the line that she gives, which was really intriguing to me. I guess I'm, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but I to come back around to that, I think we will time and time again. I think that line is pretty much Zahir, like to to the bone. He he is. Performing, or he wants to perform high-level airbender moves with a little spiritual stuff thrown in. Now that I see her um, astral projection and knowing Zaheer wants to kind of disconnect from the ground, that's his whole thing too, right? We see this in uh, the second episode, actually. His whole – he keeps quoting this guru, you know, let, your, let go your earthly tether, enter the void, empty and become wind. That's basically what Janora is doing. Um, so I don't know if there's a connection there or not, if I'm reading too much into that, but I hope not, because uh, I would like that to tie into the larger fabric of this season, because, I mean, we didn't get a whole lot of explanation last in the in book two, when it just kind of happened, uh, Deus Ac, ex, uh, Genora, as we keep saying. But, right. Um, well, I mean, it seems to take everybody by surprise that she could still do it in this episode as much as it... I know it you was know, a little surprising to see, audience. It, to see it come back. That was a whole that that whole scene was weird. Okay, because that scene starts with they uh, Mako and Bolin talk about how uh, they they've learned that the Earth Queen is keeping the Airbenders, and then Boomy defends it as conscription in this medieval uh, world, which I love because that's totally true and sort of a gray issue. And then Jinora reveals that she could spirit project since harmonic convergence or something like that. And then Mako reveals that he's been reading Jinora's books. And I don't know at what time that would have happened. It must have been in the two weeks after harmonic convergence because Mako had been avoiding all of them since then. And then he was on like the airship for like maybe two days. And then all of a sudden he's been like reading Jinora's books. So, and, 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 Everything about that scene just like felt a little weird. And maybe she's we published, you it, know. Maybe she, uh, maybe she got a book deal. And then, well, I, been- <laughs> I, I mean, she's not writing about literally Nick her Leo books. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it. It was weird to have all those little exposition pieces like all shoved into the same scene. But once we cleared it, right. you know, the episode picked back up again. It it does feel like storytelling sacrifice in a way um and you see this often in the in the best movies the best movies have this the best television shows have this where it's like you know what it's 
all, it's going to be all the exposition at once. We're going to we're going to just blow past it. You'll never remember this moment. You'll have all the information you need to make the, all the other scenes fulfilling like sacrifice. We have to do this. Um but yeah. I do I do think adding Boomy's part to that made it really interesting. What you were talking about with um the uh, not, like they can take the airbenders, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's the it's a real thing. It's called conscription, where you, as a ruler of your nation, can uh, basically sign up your people for the army. It's like a draft uh, in a way, but to protect your nation, it's something you can do. It's part of your right as a ruler. I just love the the moral fuzziness of that situation. Yes, she can do it. Uh, and that, and it doesn't really go back to that or readdress that problem. I guess it does a little bit when Cora busts all these airbenders out and they want to leave. She's helping them. She's freeing them. This is what they want. Um, but the earth queen does tell her that it's, it's, she's declaring war by doing this and it doesn't matter. Uh, and technically on paper, the earth queen is right. You know, she shouldn't do this. It's, it's illegal. Uh, in a well, way. she's it's under under her law. It's definitely legal. Um, but, you know, she Cora's got a forced change. Wow. Uh, everywhere she goes. And that's sort of echoed in the metal clan later, but still getting ahead of ourselves. It reminds me of like a Mossad mission for some reason, like mm-hmm. going underneath the government and performing. I don't know. Did mm-hmm. You ever see the debt with. Uh, oh, yes, I did see the debt. It reminds me of that, like sneaking around somebody else's territory and clearly breaking their laws, uh, but to serve the greater nation and whatever you think is right, uh, which is I mean, not always right. If we want to talk about the breakout, uh, like that was also a good action directing scene. Oh, it was incredible. Talking about talking about it in terms of legality now, it's interesting that Lynn participates because wouldn't that also put Republic City in a warlike position should that come yeah i don't know i don't know if when the earth queen says that this is an act of war who that war is necessarily being waged upon is that is that clear uh well i I mean that the earth queen doesn't recognize the united republic right and she's kind of like living in her own bubble i don't know who she would be waging war against uh, I would say the Air Nation, if the Air Nation turns out to be a nation that is capable of war, if like Tenzin doesn't convince them to all be nomads, but if they're more, you know, something new. Was it a sacrifice worth taking, in your opinion? That's, this is getting very political now, but within the confines of the Coraverse. <laughs> I mean, maybe. I don't want to jump too far into where we're going with like this Israel parallel of creating a place. I definitely don't want to, <laughs> I definitely don't want to talk too much about that. Um, very... uh, I'm glad they're all going to the Northern air temple since, you know, that's should historically be their land. So that's well, good. What I do want to talk about and, and people on our, um, talk back, uh, we're, we're discussing this a little bit and I wasn't entirely clear what they were getting at. Um, our one, our one commenter, great commenter, Love Waffle, um, said something about uh, they don't have to keep, and they being the creators, the writers, don't have to keep making Korra the reason every conflict blows up. Um, and I find that hard to, to grapple with. Like, Korra, need, Korra is never given uh, an option where there's one easy out where saying, 
this, like I, I'm going to stay out of it, and everything is going to be peachy. Uh, I don't, I don't find her butting into situations and making them worse. She has to make a choice, and it's going to be worse on one side or the other. There's no easy option here. Am I, am I crazy to think this? Uh, I mean, that's that's part of the. This is not why it's not a clear hero story, right? This is not Lord of the Rings. This is much much more complicated than that, and it has to be, um, because this show is, at the end of the day, it's about politics, and it's about what it takes to be a hero in the modern world, the modern world being ours, but also, of course, a more modern version of Avatar The Last Airbender. Uh, There's no easy option. Well, and I guess what would you define as making things worse? Um, Well, I'll I'll quote Love Waffle here, who I, I asked to explain further. Uh, and they said that uh, it's not that Cora isn't trying to be proactive about the problems around her that she thinks she can solve as the Avatar. It's that she goes about it in a way that only makes tensions worse. So his exa- the example – actually, I don't know if it's a he or she. Love Waffle, you have to tell me. Um, book one, hey, Cora, if you didn't let Tarlock trick you into endorsing his turning Republic City into a police state by stroking your ego, the Equalist Movement – never would have made their move to take over the city so soon. And then the example in book two is, hey, Cora, if you didn't let Unalak trick you into endorsing his turning the South Pole into a police state by stroking your ego, the Civil War never would have happened, and he could have been stopped long before he freed Vatu. And that's part of what makes book three's conflict so refreshing, unless she did something when she was five years old. We can't blame Cora at all for what's happening. These conflicts are happening despite her, not because of her. Um, so may- maybe Love Waffle and I are aligning on book three, but I would disagree on book two and book one. Again, these are moves that she has to make. She has to – I mean the position that she's in, someone wants her to to make a move, make a decision and whatever she decides, someone's going to hate that decision, and it's going to have a ripple effect one way or another, and it's going to cause problems. I feel like that's every political move that our country makes, every country makes. Um, this is this is part of being a quote-unquote hero. Possibly. I mean, it sounds like you're just reacting to, or I, it's like everyone is reacting to like the 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 wrong decisions Korra makes are like her inexperience at being an avatar and a leader. And I think that is just liable to happen to anyone. Right. And th- this season change is difficult and she's doing what she thinks is best. Not necessarily what anyone thinks is right. I mean, Tenzin's pretty psyched, but other than that, everybody else is, she keeps getting banished or getting declared war everywhere. She leaves from, so uh, it's I don't know it's not so much that she's making these problems for herself because Amon and uh, harmonic convergence would have you know probably happened with, without her regard or would have happened regardless of whatever she did. Uh, this one is the threat of the Red Lotus has something to do with ending like the Avatar cycle. And, you know, all the previous Team Avatar and whatever 13 years ago got together to battle about it. So Korra isn't necessarily responsible for this big bad either. It would have happened to any Avatar that wasn't Korra. But the way she barges into cities and claims that she is, you know, there to take away citizens based on their free will without any regard to the cultures that she's doing that in is, you know, another 
problem that you come across being a leader and how she deals with that is just Cora character development. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to blame her for making mistakes, too. And I try and really stress this to people, that every book has been about Cora facing a new problem that she's never seen before. So, of course, she doesn't know how to solve it, right? And she's only – she's how old is Cora? She's a teenager or, or maybe getting into her 20s. Um, she doesn't know how to handle herself. No one would at that age with that level of experience, but she, she feels a drive to do it. Uh, and I agree that like barging into the Earth Kingdom saying that we want to take all your airbenders is probably not the way to go about doing that. Uh, well, they had to make the Earth Queen an extremely obviously evil, <clears throat> almost obs- almost badly oriental- orientalized character, just just so we would side with Korra like automatically because the issue right if, she, if she's more away, Queen of Hearts in Alice in Wonderland as we've said before than she is a realistic right if you take if you take away the characters that issue is totally gray. And it's hard to say who's on the right side, but because we like Korra and because we don't like the Earth Queen, we can sort of look over the fact that, you know, it's irresponsible to go into a culture and demand things because you're as something. I don't, I'm not sure the better way to handle that situation. <laughs> I, I don't know if there is either. I think I have to go to like certain- eight years of Harvard or some undergrad and grad program to really understand yeah but you get the feeling like if iroh was around he'd he'd just do it everyone would be drinking tea yeah and and chit-chatting it'd be be like the thing about pie show is it tells you don't conscript your citizens (laughs) you do a really good mako (laughs) (laughs) i'd get good iroh well isn't it isn't it mako who does the voice of oh yeah it is it is mako Uh, it gets confusing uh, it is. I oh. think just with Iro, because I've heard him say I'm things sorry. so so many times. Iro. Um so you so you were honing on the, on this action scene uh at the end, which is kind of glossing over a big chunk of the middle of this episode, but I, I I will say that more than the previous three episodes, this one kind of spun its wheels a little more for me. Mm-hmm. Um just in terms of like the Janora quest to find out where the airbenders were. I, I did enjoy seeing like Kai get his butt kicked by the Dai Li for some reason. That really, maybe maybe because I'm just so fearful of him being a scamp that I hate. Um, right. That, like, well, you probably him. really like the fact that he sort of disappears for the Metal Clan, but <laughs> he does completely disappear. No, I, I'm, I, I want him to be part of Team Avatar. They've quickly put him into that position by making Bolin obsessed with Kai, which I think is really smart. That's a, that's a very crafty way of incorporating someone you don't have a lot of time to incorporate. Um, but seeing him like in these training camps in these like damp, dark, evil, menacing training camps really helped me sympathize with him and like get on board um, maybe i'm a kai fan now and i just adore kainora i think that's what the kids are, the kids are uh, calling the good them ship kainora i know yes <laughs> i'm setting c on kainora right now uh i uh, yeah I'm, I'm down with that that's really cute i'm I, I i have nothing more to say than it just brings me joy to see them like pecking each other's cheeks. I also love Tenzin. I, maybe that's what brings me real joy because this is like Tenzin being all dad like, and that really that's what I'm all about. I think he has a line. Oh, Mako says, "Oh, you have a very strong spiritual connection with Kai. Maybe you can find him." And Tenzin's like, "What do you mean a connection?" 
<laughs> and I'm like, oh, dad, you don't get it. You think he's going to be like that? You you don't think he's going to be psyched that his young airbender daughter found a nice airbender boy? Are you joking? What dad is like that? Uh, I, uh, no dad. Uh, no dads are like that. I'm sorry to fair. tell you. Yeah, probably not. How have you not encountered that in your life? I feel like you I, you probably had a girlfriend when you were like 11 years old. That's just a guess. But uh, knowing you, that was you. And then you had I mean, an angry dad at you who was like, get out of my house, Dave, with a seven. <laughs> yes, that actually I'm I, yeah, sure. Sure, I guess. <laughs> All I'm saying is that it's a I'm very interested on how the airbender culture changes with like the <clears throat> my voice keeps cracking with the younger generation being so I, I guess aggressive with using airbender techniques without really knowing the spiritual side behind it that's why I keep thinking like we get a very touching moment where everybody elects to go with Tenzin at the end and he, he sort of gets his fulfillment that, that he didn't get last episode of uh, sort of getting to rebuild a nation and I can't help but feel that like it's his own children have been so resistant to his stuffy spiritualism that the future air nation is going to be something a lot more like Kai and Janora than it is going to be like uh, traditional air nomads that Tenzin knew about. Yeah, it's going to be chill. It's going to be a chill airbending community. It's well, not- I mean, I don't think necessarily that because I think the opposing force is Zaheer, who I think is somewhat connected to airbenders or is at least obsessed with it. I've been seeing him describe as airbender otaku, which I think is hilarious. Um, but it's like the new air nation has to be strong enough to stand up to what Sahir thinks it needs to be. I feel like you see this happen. This is an interesting reflection of how religion has changed. I think in the last even 50 years, um, which is hard to believe, but I'm trying to go back now in history uh, and, and think about how staunch religious figures and organizations were, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, um, and and then now, and how they modernize, and how you can still be faithful, or you can still be spiritual, and still be a modern human being, like Donora or Kai. I think about, here's a really bad example, because there are many Eastern examples that would, would be much more appropriate, but to relate something that, that our listeners might be more keen on is um, like the Amish, Take the Amish, who are very – the Amish are a cult, basically, and I'm, I've offended someone out there. I apologize. Uh, my grandpa being one of them. My grandpa always hated – You could, we grew you could up always the just Amish. say religious sect. And- well, no. They're definitely, they're definitely like a cult. I mean it's, it's much more rigid than that, and it's much more aggressive than that. Um, and that's why my dad – so my dad and my grandpa all grew up around the Amish in, in rural Pennsylvania. And my dad was like, the, the Amish are a cult. And my grandpa was like, no, 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 no. They just do what they like. But they're basically a cult. But they're loosening up as time goes on, right? You see that – the fact that there have been Amish reality shows tells you something about the modernization of the Amish community and how it's kind of it's – it's not necessarily breaking up because people still want the traditions of the Amish in their lives. 
but um, they have to become part of this today's society. Now they still have their rules in place that they can't drive cars or use electricity, but they'll happily take a car ride with someone who offers it or use the electricity of someone else's home if they're invited in. So it's that kind mm. of like, I, we're just becoming, I, we're becoming modern figures here. Yes, I want to, first of all, <laughs> say how much I disagree with some of what you said. You should disagree so. with what I say. That's the whole point. I mean, just like, let's, I don't know, having talked to some Amish people and knowing what I know, I'm very hesitant to call them a cult, but I will say... This is what my dad said, I'm I'm relaying my dad's experience and my grandpa's experience. Where do you talk to Amish people? (laughs) That's fine. I am a man of the world. That's true. You do not know all the experiences that I have, but I do want to talk about what you're talking about, like them modernizing and being part of like a reality show, because I do think that is something that we've sort of seen on the show with the airbenders is it's like they'd become uh, oddity because they're so new and they've managed to, go through the ages unlike other forms of bending without really changing because there's only been so few of them there's just been this one family so their traditions are still very ancient and then they're suddenly given to people that have no idea of those traditions and are suddenly just like Daw who we get to see in this episode, next episode, the Metal Clan we get to see again um, who you know is just sort of airbending out of instinct and so it doesn't have any of this tradition. It's just suddenly resurrected from far back in history. And that's what we sort of get when we get to watch Amish TV shows is we get to, you know, sort of marvel at this oddity suddenly being thrown into a modern world. So that parallel I definitely agree with. At least you agreed with one of the things I was rambling about. I just don't want to call any religions a cult talking about a Nickelodeon cult cartoon show because I feel like <laughs> that in, that involves more debate than it's that, a, more off-topic debate. Than it's a serious need. claim. All right, I, yeah. I retract my statement, but my dad's thoughts on the Amish live on. Uh, this all comes back to Witness. That's the reason. The movie Witness with Harrison Ford. That's what really <laughs> sparked this conversation. Doesn't it always all come back to Witness? It does. It does. That's required reading for next week. Watch Witness. Um, what One thing before we kind of put In Harm's Way behind us. Um, actually, two things. One, going back to the astral projection, Chinora's skill I, I mentioned this earlier in the episode. I wanted to hear your thoughts. Does this have a larger uh, importance in the in the fabric of this season? Uh, uh, and does it is it still annoying you that it has no real basis? That there's no explanation for this, but they keep pulling it out. Um, I think yes, it's going to come up again because the only reason they would hit it this hard and take us to Lake Leogai for no reason is to let us know that Jinora is the Doctor Strange of this X-Men of Airbenders that the team that eventually is going to have to form and defend itself. Doctor Strange the- wasn't in the X-Men. I know, but that's she has Doctor Strange powers. But she just is in the X-Men. Can't you say the Avengers? Isn't she? Isn't Doctor Strange? eventually part of the avengers yeah but the avengers aren't like the x-men i still think we're getting like an x-men team and we have to show like each one's powers right Hmm. so like this was the kai episode was previous in harm's way is sort of the Genor episode the metal clans the opal episode opal we'll get there we're running our we're running our x-men team up so and then we're going to once we have our team together and they're all the northern air temple 
we'll get a flashback episode and get to see how Sokka and uh, Tanrock took down the Red Lotus the first time. <laughs> and we'll have inclusion X-Men team battle in probably the Northern Air Temple. If we keep It'll- calling them the Red Lotus, it's going to be hard to adjust to whatever we have to call them later. Um, but so from a storytelling standpoint, does it work for you that this power keeps surfacing i've seen many complaints on both our boards and people sending us messages on tumblr which i apologize we can't get to all of them um uh, but but we will bring them up here uh some people have a problem with how little we know about what's going on mainly harmonic convergence what what did this do to people and why is no one telling us just just tell us already they scream um and janora's power falls into that a little bit but i wonder if if you have an issue with it uh, not particularly. It's close enough to visually. It's close enough to how Aang would astral project, and then just the idea that harmonic convergence changed how spiritual powers sort of work. Uh, those two things together sort of lets me headcanon the difference out. So it's not <laughs> me. That is your it's favorite phrase. Yeah, it does. But well, I mean, that's the that's the reaction to the PTSD of having something unexplained in a fandom is you just sort of, you connect the dots. But I think it's like that only, it only bothers me in that one scene where they just decide to put all the exposition around one table and it sort of stalls after that and needs to pick up with more action later on. But it does, which made me like it. I'm going to pretend that every scene where people, where the Avatar characters just sit around a table and talk is a throwback to Yasujiro Ozu. And it's like an Ozu film where you just, you know, like Tokyo Story or Floating Weeds and people are just sitting around talking. Look that up, everybody. Ozu. Learn the films. Um, and, to wrap, and to wrap this episode up, you loved this last action scene. I, I really adored two things about it. Um, one, the fight kind of a small contained fight in the hallway where like Kai and Mako and Bolin are all shooting stuff. And, um, Gary Cole is the leader of the Dai Li, which is like the, the biggest throwaway role ever. <laughs> I don't, why did you hire Gary Cole? He's amazing. Um, hysterical. I think actually on our other podcast, Dave, um, fighting in the war room, I don't know if you were on the episode, but, uh, during our review of Tammy, I, I praised Gary Cole, as as a comedic force that I'm not sure anyone could name like his best movie, but it might be the Brady Bunch movie uh, <laughs> or Office Space. Uh, it could be Office Space, but uh, there's no reason to cast him as the leader of the Daily. I'm sorry, not a funny part, not an interesting part, but coolly animated. I always have I've I've always loved the Daily um, metal or the stone handcuffs that yeah, they yeah, shoot off. The stone gloves. Those are always awesome. And I just thought containing that in a really small space made the action very interesting. Just to go back to like, oh, have we seen this before? What is interesting about this action scene? It's because we're suffocating it in a way. And yeah. then and then later... Ma- oh, watching Mako and Bolin in closed quarters fight is one of the better things of season one in that episode where they're trying to find where they keep Korra and they uh. end up finding rescuing the detectives. And so I was really happy to see it come back here. And I love when they fight together because we're not getting any more pro bending. I assume I I just I'm, I'm chalked it up to it would seem being out of Republic City. Yeah, it, it would seem weird at this point if they were like, "Wait, we have a match. Stop all this that we're doing." <laughs> a whole bottle episode where they forget that they have 
uh, pro bending match and they have to fly back to Republic City as quickly as possible and compete. Actually, I I mean, I don't want them to stop because there aren't enough episodes to stop, but I would take one what Tano's doing right now episode, and I think a lot of <laughs> fandom would too. <laughs> People are going to go crazy. Write that fan fiction, fan fiction contest. Uh, the other part of this action scene that I really liked and – we have to praise these guys because we are fans of theirs and they've been on the show. But um, Jeremy Zuckerman and Ben Wynn, uh, the composer and the sound designer of the show, knocked it out of the park at the end of this episode um, when Cora and the whole airbending team, they launch into an airbending attack for the first time. And oh, yeah. I, I just thought the music, I couldn't tell if it was sound design or music, which I think is perfect. You hear the wind blowing. And then the wind gets so ferocious that it starts sounding like a choir of, of voices. And I wasn't – it sounded like um, uh, Georgi Leggetti, the, you know, the like high choir sounds that we've heard in 2001 A Space Odyssey or the Godzilla trailer for some people's reference point. <laughs> um, but well, and more like, recently it's in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, yeah. We do hear a little of that. Um, yeah, just this like – well, I think they use them in very similar way, which is like both awe and horror, and you don't. It sort of transitions from one to another, um, very subtly, and it really works. Where it's like, especially when we were talking about what's actually happening, is such a gray political era area that like watching this nation come together for the first time and realizing how powerful they are all are as one. Is like sort of you're in awe, but there, it's a possible future danger. Yeah, it sent chills down my spine. Um, oh, speaking of while we're on the score, I think the Game of Thrones theme was in <laughs> this episode when Janor is spirit projecting at Lake Leogai for the first time. There's like a picking viola part that I'm pretty sure yes, goes dun 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 dun. But see, twice. it doesn't. I think it actually goes dun 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 dun. We'll have to, we're going to research this. We're going to look more into this. We're, this is an, an ongoing investigation, but I swear that it goes a few beats or a few tones lower than, uh, than, than the way that the Game of Thrones theme concludes. Well, once we're able to purchase <laughs> the episodes, which maybe this is a good way to transition, um, we got word from Brian on Tumblr and the Coronation blog that on the 14th, episodes one through three of book three are going to be online on their iTunes and Amazon places in their HD form, which is sweet. And then it looks like we'll be running a two week delay on episode releases. So two weeks from now, when I am able to get at that audio in a more pure form, we'll return to this. And if and figure if, out. I've seen a few people throw their hands up and be like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And I think it all comes back to the leaks and how quickly they circulated and how many people watched them. I think, um, as you mentioned to me, Dave, that they may not have been ready with the episodes, so they have to kind of stagger the release as opposed to being like they're, they're off their plan, right? So they're, they're scrambling to get yeah. these into people's hands, and they can't quickly enough. And two um, – I just think they want people to watch them properly, so they want people to go to nick.com and stream them. I think you can stream them right away after the episodes air uh, on on the nickelodeon.com website proper, uh, and then you can own them later. So this is, a, I mean, it all seems to ripple from the leaks, which we're, we're wagging our fingers at you if you if you watch them. Uh, well, and it's made it's made the actual airings so anticlimactic. I mean, like. 
yes, you should watch them, but really it's Nick.com is going to be the resource for people because 8 p.m. on a Friday for an hour is a really weird time to put this show, which, like, especially during In Harm's Way, I felt really bad this was not on its Saturday morning because this would have made a great Saturday morning cartoon. Just, like, starting off with a huge action sequence then into like a whole bunch of weird spirit projecting, right. then out with a huge action sequence. You're, you're and one, then a little you wonder, bit about description. You wonder if um if if Korra does for young people what like the X Men animated show or the Spider Man animated show or Batman animated do, did for us. I'm assuming that you were in that crowd watching that show, uh, as all yeah. young nerds of our our generation were. Um, but because it's not on Saturday mornings, maybe it's harder. But kids watch shows, you know, there's so many ways to watch. Uh, they're much craftier than we were at that point. We just had to watch Saturday morning cartoons because we didn't have another option. I guess I'm more concerned because no one's going to happen across it there. You're going to have to curate a younger audience to find Cora and be like, Nick.com, go to go see Cora," Or like, hey, I DVR'd Cora," which requires one person already being aware the show's amazing before a new person can find it, and I'm not sure how dependable that is. Not being on Saturday mornings, the biggest problem is it's not winning Emmys. It's not winning daytime Emmys. It's being disqual. It's being uh, beaten at the at the primetime Emmys by Family Guy, and that's what really annoys me. Uh, anyway, As it should. <laughs> why don't we why don't we talk about this second episode and wrap up here? The Metal Clan um, playing fetch with Naga is the most adorable thing ever. And w- what did you think of this one, Dave? Uh, I like it. It seems like at like halfway through season one, they realized, like we all realized, that Lin Beifong was a special story, and they were able to do a lot with that character once they decided what they wanted to do. And so, you know, after she got her bending back, which I feel like happened because they were like oh we're gonna be making a couple more books uh yeah i'm glad we 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 should end this with lynn getting her (laughs) getting her bending back because she's an amazing character but like the way she was able to sort of pick up toff's legacy and now complicate it so much by just the reveal of a sister by another father is like really artful in terms of like both the character i mean it's uh, this sort of feels like a chapter in like a greater fantasy book in the way that it's able to use the economy of a new setting in the world to also deepen one of our core characters uh, in such an interesting way. Where like at the end, the last shot of the episode where she's crying right after she yells at Opal for absolutely no reason. I was so sad that this wasn't instantly paired with whatever the episode is that gives me an explanation as to what's happening. Because, I don't know, I've been looking around online and a lot of people have been thinking maybe it has something to do with Tenzin, but I'm thinking, like, the show is capable of opening up so much more than that and having a real complex sisterly relationship. And then, like, the fact that I already know so much about how Toph was raised, I was really sort of i guess amazed by this episode on the writing standpoint which is usually i engage with at least the animation or some aspect of the production but i think that it was just really well constructed as an episode of cora in a way that i don't think anything in book two was so that's in a way that we haven't seen since book one i i don't think there's been an episode as well written as this one 
even in book one, I would say, um, or an, an episode that emphasizes the writing so strongly. Obviously, it's an animated show, and we're here for action, and we're here for spectacle, um, and there, there's some of that. I mean, flying into Zalfu, the metal, this metal city, it's quite beautiful. Um, it, it reminds me of some dystopian fiction or something. It's like, um, God, what is the, the city from Logan's run? Uh, Dome World. <laughs> it reminds me of Dome World or something. It's so perfect that it must not be, right? Uh, and, and of course, Suyin, uh, she's, she's so perfect that something must be going on there. But again, I don't think this episode is necessarily... I mean, I, I gave it a pass in terms of like not having a ton of action, although it has one of the, <laughs> the best action scenes uh, in the whole series, actually, again. So I, maybe I shouldn't discredit it for that. Uh, I forgot the whole other B-plot of this episode going on yeah. that is... Uh, Full of adrenaline. Uh, but the writing in this Lin Bei Fong section is so elegant. As you, as you mentioned, um, what you can do by introducing another character, instead of just telling us what's wrong with Lin Bei Fong, show us what gets under her skin or like pull her layers back by exposing her to something that she's sworn off seeing for what? Like 30 years? is Something like that? Um, her sister and what that means in this relationship. How complicated and how daring for the show to introduce the idea that Toph like had a husband or had a lover or what, you know, had someone uh, and she gave birth to Lin and then she had another husband and she gave birth to Suyin. Um, and that's like so tricky and so realistic, frighteningly realistic. Uh, and then it produces someone like Lin, who you know we could we had enough characterization of Lin in this show. Uh, in the first season, she's a prickly, you know, uh, by the books gal, uh, and she just wants to protect everyone, and she you know doesn't want to steer off course. She's not a renegade like Cora, who always wants to do something now or or throw herself into danger. She's very worried, um, but she she can, she's still brutal. That's enough. Like, you don't need more than that for a side character. But to uh, have the gravitas to slip into the past without actually just going to a flashback yet, I think, obviously, we know we're going we're, we're gonna to get there. We're working up to that. But for an episode to take the time to just see the friction between two people and to kind of pierce Lynn in the most delicate of ways, uh, I, I turn it to you, Dave, because I thought, when I saw Lynn in this episode in particular, someone who's just... Her bark and her bite are, are just vicious. Um, but that we know over the course of this episode, as layers are peeled back, we, we start learning that there's a reason. There's reasons why she's so prickly. And it made me think of, of people in my life, older people um, that I knew that were like that, that I only learned later why they were like that. I had a history teacher who was just the meanest woman you've ever met. Um, and everyone hated her, right? You hate an, an old crank. Um, and you don't give her the time of day. And I was very fortunate to eventually learn why she was so cranky. She had a lot of medical problems, and her family was just destroyed by, by other problems. And, I mean, she had, a, she had a rough life. And, of course, she was a crank. And, of course, she wanted everyone to she, – she was also a great teacher. We learned a lot. But I don't think young people give old people a lot of – time of day or try and learn about them. And I think this episode does a lot to that. I mean, Cora is interested why Lynn is acting this way, but her last line is so brutal. I mean, it's over there, right? Until she finds something that's really revelatory, telling Lynn that she's, you're always going to be a bitter, lonely woman. That is, that is 
the hardest gut punch this show has ever thrown. I'm wondering if you could relate to that on on any level, real, um, from real life. Oh, from real life. I was going to say that if I've learned anything from producing reality television for like five or six years, it's that uh, empathy is completely different from understanding the narrative of somebody's life. So you could... Uh, even in real life, have a friend that, you know, you guys are on the exact same wavelength and you uh, like all the same things and can talk endlessly about things is still completely different from knowing where that person's coming from. Like the details, the uh, the brick and mortar that make up somebody's being is completely different than understanding how that person operates and for me that's what this episode sort of demonstrates is we could understand how lynn operates but not understand who she is or what her actual motives are because we don't have all the details and i hope that the enriching of her backstory will bring us closer to an understanding of her, but I also hope that it just complicates the entire worldview because she's so tied into now an entire clan of people living in this metal city with apparently no lies and secrets, but this one really, really emotionally scarred family at the center of it. And I, and I imagine that Tenzin will be a, a notch on this on this timeline for Lynn, but not like the causation for everything. Right. Don't, don't, I, that's what I imagine. Now that we have Suyin in, in the picture here and we know more about Toph and the mothering there or the lack thereof of, of, of a mother figure in Lynn's life. I mean, there's a lot going on with Lynn that's beyond Tenzin. Tenzin probably left her or they erupted uh, because of other problems she was having in life. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I will say that if this backstory does tie into Tenzin, then Tenzin's chances of dying this season are exponentially get bigger. I know. We are so on the... I am... After watching these two episodes, I am high on the Tenzin death watch. I Well, I'm, he's I'm getting too much him. happy. I mean, uh, um, we're going we're gonna to see what's going on. The good thing is that when they're, you know, when Zaheer is fighting stuff, He's not necessarily, they're not talking about his past conflicts with Tenzin, which is nice, because if that was happening, then you know there's a showdown coming. But it seems like it was mostly White Lotus, Tonrock, and Chief, Chief Sokka, which means Chief Sokka's coming back in the flashback. I'm so looking forward. Yeah, to did you light up uh, when you heard that name? Whatever flashbacks come in this season, it sounds like it's going to be really juicy. Like 13 years ago, maybe that's how Sokka dies. Oh, man. Oh, man, it's going to be so great. Um, although, with all this Lin backstory, Lin, Death Watch, Lin Beifong, you were on the Death Watch right now. Oh, I don't think. I think after we got one shot at that and a SpongeBob promo laughed as Amon took her bending. Oh, my God. And uh, that was that was that was treated so much like death in the series that I think killing. I think Lin's safe. It would be a little too much for Lin. I think she's now become so complex that she's safe and uh she's too too complex to kill at this point what is su yin adding to this show for you or how is she complicating things is it beyond lin or is this just a missile into the fabric of lin um i think that this is also what the 
whole series of Legend of Korra is about, which is sort of like how family and generations, the consequences that one generation makes gets echoed down into other generations. So I think uh, we see a lot of, you know, obviously conflicts between siblings. Uh, It's nice to see female siblings in conflict and ones that are this tied into the politics as Suyin talks about her views on how the earth queen should step aside uh, to the fact that she founded the, you know, like the city with uh, Toph. Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's a more a greater core is about how your family and your siblings and the choices you make uh, affect the lifestyle of the people who come after you. So I think that's why we're seeing this. I really enjoy seeing that, uh, like, you know how in real life, if people have really strict parents, they might raise their children very laxly Hmm. that, you know, that sort of seemingly happens here where tough, you know, sort of let them do whatever they want. And something happened that made Lynn really stern and Suyin sort of was the more free spirit. So I'm interested to see that more happen with that. And uh, I'm also interested to see what happened to Suyin there because if that pattern were to continue, then you think Suyin would be really strict with her children. And she does want to keep Opal there for her training, but doesn't seem to be being really strict with anybody in her family. So unless there's some more darkness there... Yeah, that was a very interesting line for her to be like, no, she can't leave. This is the perfect place. It's, it's, it screams dystopia underneath the bubbly, happy veneer. Right. Uh, I'm just waiting. I'm just wondering what. And she also basically condemns Zhao Fu to fall uh, Titanic style by saying it's impenetrable. It has the greatest you know, defense system of any city anywhere. Well- and it's doomed because Varric's there and he's working with magnets. That just seems like a horrible idea. Where are the juggalos? They can, they can fix this. Um, the thing I wanted to be, say about Suyin was, um, you know, you and I both went to art school. Uh, I think it shows. I think it definitely shows. I think it, sadly enough. Well, I think one of my fears is always coming off like a Suyin, right? You go to art school and now... Maybe you're you're talking about film or something you read in The New Yorker or you're a foodie and you just tried this uh, delectable dish or something at a very uh, farm-to-table restaurant. <laughs> and then you go home or something and you see maybe people who stayed at home and they have a real craft and they might be a little more bread and butter, blue-collar type. I mean, I have friends who are like that that I, I treasure and I love them. Um, I see differences in us but i'm like I ca- i'm careful about that i don't want to come off as like i escaped and somehow did better it's, it's not a it's not a it's not like that right just because you leave and culture yourself in a different way does not make you better than someone i think that is a severe conflict that su yin and lin seem to have um and it, it aggravates me su yin's behavior kind of aggravates me of course she's dancing she has like uh what 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 is her dance? Uh, she she dances around in a lotus flower. Uh, it's it's silliness. It's just um, it's what only someone super rich and with a great background uh, in culture can do. She collects rare meteorites. What is that? See, what it seems what to a me, hippie. It, yeah, it's like what a this hipster. Is, this is what happens to that very particular brand of manic pixie dream girl that you know tumbles through life with seemingly no consequences 
like I'm sure there are girls and there are guys in this thing. They're usually of upper class and they're usually white. I'm sorry, that's just the way it pans out. But they're like, you know, even when things are going bad for them, it's sort of like it works out for them somehow. That's sort of like the feeling I get with Suhin is like this confidence that her decisions, even though she's not sure in them, are the right ones. Because, you know, she has her soothsayer and her, you know, uh, chef. She's able to see the good in people and sort of massage that out. Right. Nothing's nothing's bad. The bad things don't happen to Suyin. Right. She's so caught up in her idyllic world that um, having a queen is so outdated. Like, she can't fathom having politics in her life. Like, that is so yeah. passe. It's just, you know, she, I, and this is what I was saying, that, like, my fears about being a culturalist, someone who wants these same things in their life, uh, you you have to stay on the ground. This is really my life lesson to all listeners who pursue the arts or pursue a liberal arts education. Uh, Just remember where you came from, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't don't be be, uh, Su Yin. You don't want to be Su Yin. I mean, uh, there's ways in which you do want to be Su Yin, she obviously gives people second chances out the wazoo. She made an entire city out of metal work more efficiently. She lets her husband work through dinner yeah, with her eldest son, which seems like great bonding. I wish my dad was like designing a train station with me and Varric. You could do that if you wanted to. There's lots of stuff about Suyin that's good. There's just something off about it. And since we don't know what happened in the past, I don't know what that is yet. She also has the perfect children, right? She has two jocks who play Metal Disc, or did I hear that wrong? What is what is their game that they invented because they're so smart? I think it is something like Metal Disc. And then there's and then there's Skrillex, who um, who creates art inspired by the Harmonic and Convergence, which of course. (laughs) Um, But then you have Opal, who is Mm -hmm. a shining light, a great new addition to this show, I think. I love that she has she has eyes for Bolin, but she also has she's committed to being a great airbender. Which yeah. this is how you do like solid relationships on television, right? She's not just batting her eyes. She's not a like a love object for Bolin because he needs one, right? She goes after him and she she is independent enough to have her own she has things on her plate. She wants to be a great airbender. And when he comes off as a total scumbag, which he does, take notes, people, that, like men out there. This is a horrible – and this is what so many people do. They try and be brotastic when they're pursuing women, and it's disgusting. What Bolin does in this episode is disgusting, and she slaps him for it, not physically, but like with her words, um, and wakes him up to the fact that he should just be her, himself because that's what she likes and that's what she wants, and she also wants to be an airbender. I love Opal. Yeah, I mean, it's this show, I mean, this episode in particular is dominated by amazing women characters doing amazing things. From Opal, you know, providing a nice counterpoint to uh, the Desna Eska, who are always together, uh, storyline from uh, last uh, season, where basically now Bolin has a love interest, and the main thing she wants from him is for him to be himself, which is what you would like to ideally see, which means that I think it could last, which means, yay, good. On the side, Bolin 
like has found his family, has a perfect girl, and has an adopted baby brother. He's he's still on the death watch. Devendra, that one was for you. <laughs> but like, Bolin will never die. Yeah, and then Kaya, who was left at Air Temple uh, Island, uh, gets to also sort of be a awesome bender, an amazing and fight. Here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, came out of nowhere too. Like, oh, she's alone. I guess she has to fight Zaheer. Uh, and to add to add to this strong female character list of this episode, Toph. I mean, Toph is essential to this episode, and I feel like what I've heard about the choices she's made in life to be a great policewoman, to find romance in the face of, of failure or, or perhaps death, maybe. We don't know what happened to uh, Lin's father, to, to warrant the fact that uh, Su Yin is her half-sister and has a different father. We don't know what the story is, but I just feel like it's still an example of Toph prevailing or following her own choices in some way. Like, Toph's examples here are, are without appearing in the show, are, are so ingrained in all the drama. And that makes her such an, an important and vivid character <laughs> Yeah, without ever appearing. It's expert. It's amazing. I mean... Yeah, I, I would assume that we would get Toph tied in to whatever the problem is between the sisters long yeah. before we get explanation about who fathered who. Because I think Lynn and Toph at least served for a while at the same time as detectives on the Republic City police force, right? Because she has a statue mm. in the police station. Because that's what Cora saw in season one. So it would seem like... Uh, Toph was at least around and not wandering the world looking for enlightenment uh, a bit longer than this episode sort of makes it seem. But I, I don't know. I, hopefully we find more out. I really hope yeah, the flashback episode this season is going to be great. I can't wait. Uh, l- let's wrap up here by talking about Zaheer in the airbender camp. Or I'm sorry, his name is Iru. That is definitely not Zaheer or... What? So we think. Well, he shows up to the Airbender uh, oh, yeah. camp and calls himself here in disguise. Which you you I, do you think that the episode plays with the idea that you're not supposed to know it's a here right away? Or no. Are you supposed to clearly know? Because the marketing to... has told you that that is shaven, bald Zaheer. Well, the music cue and like his like he has eyebrow, an X yeah, on his, his head. yeah, the uh, the X on the head. That's the key. That's you give that to a character to say like. Hey, this character could A, changes how it looks, and B, something happened in his past. Those are the two visual cues that a facial scar gives you. An old animator trick. Yeah. Um, what, what did you think about this bit? Was it just to spice up the kind of steady talky drama ooh, of ooh, the A ooh. plot? Facial, facial scars. What? That's my new idea. For We're going to figure out how yeah. Lynn got her facial scars. She I does just talk, have those two marks. I just talk myself into that because that is totally an animator's trick. Why else would you give that if that's not the darkness in the That's path? been around since, you know, the beginning with no explanation. So I'm just saying, like, we may not get an explanation for Zaheer's facial scars, but <laughs> hearing myself say that, I realize we're going to get an explanation for Lin's facial scars, I think. Although like he has it. an X in his head, which means maybe he had some sort of lobotomy. Maybe he, maybe there is a story. That's where, that's where Boomerang hit him. I hope that happens. Oh my gosh, I really hope that happens. Um, but but let's talk about this B plot here. Um, did did it work for you? Did it serve a p- 
purpose other than just to spice things up? Are we learning about Zaheer? Is, is this complicating the story or just entertaining us because Kaya and Zaheer have a mega fight that is awesome? Um, I think the purpose of this is the line when Zaheer asks if the Avatar is going to be at the Northern Air Temple and Kaya says, no, they split up. <clears throat> they split up. Stupid voice. And uh, that's, I think, the entire purpose of the B-plot and everything beyond that is just uh, I think expanded in the right places. It's good to see the doors again. It's great seeing Milo and Da again. Oh, Milo, being like doing their comic beats, and then um, that you know Sahir coming across that locket and reminding us of his ultimate goal to untie himself from the earth and go into the void. I think it's going to be, you know, ties it ties in, but wasn't essential. I think the essential plot movement of the B plot was. Zaheer obviously is looking for the Avatar. The first place he's trying to figure out is if she's with all the airbenders. But no, she's split off. Now she, now he has to go somewhere else. There's something really... I, I found it really touching when Zaheer went into Tenzin's room and found this kind of amulet or pendant um, that had Guru Lahima. Lahima? Mm-hmm. Guru Lahima in it. And um, as our... Commenter Ivan Leroy notes that Guru Lagima is basically illustrated like Buddha, that he is some sort of like larger figure in in Avatar verse history, which I I just I liked seeing that as a visual representation of what the writings of this man means to certain people, and that Zahir is a very spiritual person and he understands the history and you know the the running theory with tons of our listeners and commenters is that maybe Zaheer was an heir acolyte or that he comes from an heir family or background somehow um, and that he's just very in tune with his life and for for some reason that makes him very maybe sympathetic is the wrong word but I'm just like he he is complicated he he is dimensional because he has this religious spiritual side to him I don't know if you feel that just inherently when he when he speaks to this Buddha-like figure. Well, I mean, he's a much more interesting character, but he's definitely a villain in the sense that he keeps going after the Avatar for some reason. Yeah, trying to kill everyone. Though. Yeah, if he killed Sokka, I don't care what air temple person he's talking wow. about. I, that, that is the villain. Boo. Boo to that. But, I mean, it is interesting to see... I don't know this dedication to a you know a dead nation, and then suddenly I think everybody that's getting air powers, we might have a connection to the air nomads of old. It's been like over a hundred years, right? It's been like 170 years. Yeah. I forget the the sense that they've been wiped out, but just the idea that you know no genocide is complete. Uh, that there might have been pockets somewhere else in the world um, that weren't necessarily airbenders, but were air nomads of some sort. I, I, I could see that happening and that they're pissed at the Avatar because the Avatar abandoned them. And uh, instead, you know, do you have a frozen. theory for why they would want to kidnap young Korra and why perhaps they would again now as she's older? I mean, if. Um, Zaheer is this spiritual and he believes in the power of, you know, sort of a human's capability to sort of meditate his way to ultimate power. It's possible that he thinks that they're beyond the Avatar 
like other people have before them. I'm not sure. I would be very surprised if whatever reason has nothing to do with harmonic convergence. Cause it seems weird that we went through this huge spirit change, but we're not really doing anything with that at this moment. That's true. We're not really only in the first episode. Do we see spirits kind of wandering around? Yeah. So I would, uh, I think it might get a little bit more spirity as we learn more about Zahir's methods, but, or mo- motivations, not methods, but I don't, I don't know. It's unclear to me at this point. Well, we have Boomchoo. Boomchoo is just flying around and following Boomy, so he's a, yeah. he's a good reminder. He'll um, be on the X-Men. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm not really sure what the end game is here for, for the Red Lotus. Um, if there's some sort of sacrificial thing that they're hoping to achieve or unlock through the Avatar, or if this does come back to perhaps what Juan did way back in the day, or what he lost the ability to do. Something about those proto-benders. I'm curious if it goes back to that in some way. But I don't know if I see Juan, the Juan story coming back in any way. This, I mean, this seems like a very now mo- uh, conversation. But I'll be curious if they related to any past avatars at all, since that connection's gone. Um, it, that would also seem sort of weird to me. I think the fact that as a hero got locked up 13 years ago, places it very squarely in the transition period between Avatar 1 and Baby Korra. Oh, I, I did want to read one of our commenters. Um, Megan wrote, and I thought this was interesting, just because obviously I'm always looking for real-world connections to this text of Korra. Uh, Megan wrote that Zaheer believes his cause for ending the Avatar's life is a righteous one. This wordplay makes me think that Zaheer and co, yes, good good way of putting it, uh, are trying to put an end to the samsara, speaking from a spiritual context. So kind of the circle of, of life, if, I, if I'm correct on that. Um, killing the Avatar, the physical embodiment of this cycle of suffering is the most straightforward solution. In this way, then, all people, benders and non-benders, can achieve a sort of enlightenment and true freedom that enthralls the here and friends. Um, that's an interesting thought. Uh, Isn't but that I, what but that's kind of, was going to do? Well, that's not what... Wasn't that really what Amon was, was saying? Like, no more Avatar or get rid of all bending so that all are equal? Uh... Yes, but I think like you focusing on the avatar as the end of the as the samsara. That's more what uh, Unalak was doing, and just uh, you know that there's this cycle of light and dark over ten thousand years, and he wanted to, you know, basically strike light out of that. And I guess in a way that happened. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. I I don't know what makes the avatar important now that the avatar is sort of is a new thing. It's basically like she's the new one. There isn't a whole bunch of, like, knowledge she has of being previous avatars and whatnot. Right. So I don't know what makes it so important now, or if uh, um, Zaheer even knows at this point that the avatar is completely different than the person he hunted 13 years ago. Yeah, he shouldn't know that, I guess. Unless he has re- he's really in tune with some spiritual side that we don't know about. But he wouldn't really know the repercussions of harmonic convergence and the shattering of the Avatar line. I don't, I don't think he is aware of any of that. So may- maybe he's about to get uh, blown in the face uh, 
by information. Who knows? Um, well, we've talked a lot about these two episodes of Avatar, but before we end, I do have to ask you, Dave, if there's something tiny that stands out to you, if you had a favorite moment in either of these two episodes, uh, something worth noting. Pabu becomes Bolin's beer belly when hiding in his times. shirt. <laughs> and just the idea that uh, that that design works so well that like people walk in, they're like, oh, and there's the skinny brother and there's the short fat brother. Yeah, I know what this is. <laughs> I've seen this in movies and, and TV before. That makes I, sense. I dig it. And then other than that, um, when the battle in the close quarters, um, anytime there's like a rock or a fire that is going directly at the camera. I'm so happy that we aren't living in some sort of CG practical series where that would have to be some sort of CG thing, but it could just be beautifully drawn and blurred and oh, just make you feel like you're in between these two uh, people fighting. And uh, I, I need to give a shout out to PJ Byrne and his, what I assume is improvisation at the end when um, Mako and Bolin are leaving their family because they're going to go back to the Earth Kingdom to help Korra or the the queen's palace and um he's just listing all of their family members uh and at a certain point it gets to medium you there's big yeah. you little you medium you uh i just thought that was really hysterical and i assume that's just pj Byrne going off in the booth because that's why you hire pj Byrne. he's hysterical uh and an improviser and that's how it happens and then i also really liked when um boomy was suggesting how to um, break into the airbender jail and his he asked if um, uh, does anyone have a badger mole that knows morse code and I really <laughs> want to know what that plan what that really was all about <laughs> I want to know why that's a, a factor in the breakout uh, well I think that wraps things up for this week's Republic City Dispatch a lengthy episode I hope you guys were entertained and have thoughts and please uh, in the comments or your reblogs leave leave your own theories leave your own comments and uh reactions to our episode and to these two episodes um and that about wraps things up dave why don't we tell people where to find us on the internet yeah uh you could find us at republiccitydispatch.com uh mr patches and i also do another podcast at fightinginthewarroom.com that covers pop culture topics and uh, a movie release every week and uh, I write about superhero movie news and Star Wars at latino-review.com. And I'm Matt Patches. I write about pop culture of all sorts all over the internet, and I try and put it all on my Tumblr, mattpatches.com. And I'm also uh, recapping, reviewing, I, I like to say. I don't like recaps. That's a, that's a weird term. Reviewing uh, episodes of Korra at screencrush.com this season. Uh, and yes, as Dave mentioned, fightinginthewarroom.com. It's a must listen. And just another reminder, iTunes reviews, uh, reblogs, comments, just all your reactions. Help us out. Um, help get Republic City Dispatch out there further to all the people who watch Cora on a weekly basis. I think they would want to be part of this conversation too. Uh, until next time, farewell. <laughs>